know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 183. Today I have with me Jennifer, and Jennifer currently serves as a survivor leader. She's a speaker. She's a consultant with the North Carolina Survivors Network. Now, Jennifer holds a bachelor's degree in humanities. She's concentrated on psychology and sociology. She's a trained advocate for victims of domestic violence. She's an Elevate Academy graduate, and she serves as an advisor on the familial trafficking to Eyes Up Appalachia. This is an anti-trafficking initiative that really focuses on familial trafficking. We don't talk about that enough. So Jennifer's mission is to educate other familial child sex trafficking victims, advocates, professionals about familial trafficking. She currently serves as a support group moderator and a peer mentor to adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And she also enjoys reading, teaching, Bible scripture, And she is a fierce advocate. She's here today to talk about her story and to remind us of the importance of focusing on familial trafficking. So welcome, Jennifer. Hi. Hi, Celia. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. And thank you so much for your bravery and courage and for the work that you do. So can you tell us about your experience, how did it come about that you became a victim of familial trafficking? Right. Well, I was, I'm just, I'll start with the background, kind of where I was born and what year. So I was born in 1966 and I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, my parents stayed married until I was about four, four or five, they separated. And then my, uh, My mother, she graduated from college and then moved my younger sister and I to uh, Northern Virginia. She went to work for the Department of Energy. And uh, my dad, he stayed in Ohio and he got remarried to somebody else. And they stayed married for eight years. And then um, so my mother remained a, a single mom. She did not remarry. And. She uh, stayed with the same job the whole time, and she would send me to my dad's every summer for uh, visitations. Mm -hmm. And then it was during those summer vacations where um, I was exposed to my dad's lifestyle, which included heavy alcohol drinking. There were pornographic magazines all over the house even in the bathrooms. So it was his way of making sure that I was exposed to that, 
you know, long before he actually started trafficking me, which was later. And what age did you start to visit your dad for the summer? It was soon after uh, they, soon after my mother moved to Virginia. So right around five, six. So yeah, every, every summer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just what was your perspective at that time when you, I'm sure it was a very different context than, than your mother's house. What, what did you think at that time? If you can remember? Yeah. In fact, that's, that's part of um, the grooming because so my dad, he lived in a very uh, upper middle class, you know, lifestyle. He, um, he'd get a new Harley Davidson every year. He made a lot of money and he had a beautiful wife and she was very loving and, um, and she was always happy to have us uh, go visit. And um, they had neighbors. I remember I had one of my memories. He took me to um, a neighbor's house. It was an older man and he would pull out pornographic magazines and show me the pictures with my dad sitting there watching. And I remember the guy telling me, this is what you're going to look like one day. And this is what men like. So my dad used this man as as a way to groom me and prepare to shape me, shape my identity. I was around nine when he did that. When I was back at my mother's, my dad gave me his phone number and told me to call him collect uh, whenever I wanted and report to him anything my mom was doing that upset me. And, um, and my mom, she, I mean, she was a single mom. She wasn't home a lot. Um, she was taking college classes. She was exhausted. She had no family help. She had no support from the community, but she also wasn't seeking support either. And so really at home at my mom's, I was, I felt very alone and uncared for, and I was being used as a, um, a parent for my younger sister, you know, that was my job, but I wasn't getting, my needs weren't getting met at all. And so, yeah. And so we would, so when I went to my dad's during the summer, all of a sudden it was just like, he, he painted a picture of making it fun, you know, lots of gifts, fancy restaurants, um, luxurious home, unlike the home of a single mom, wasn't quite as nice. Um, took took me to amusement parks, you know, created this real fun, loving atmosphere. And yeah, so oh, and and he had so he wanted me to call him, you know, during the school year to report things because what else I went through growing up was constant court battles. So my both parents, my dad was fighting for custody, so he didn't have to pay child support. And my mom was fighting for more child support. And she was happy to send me there every summer to get, you know, get a break. Um, Yeah. And so my dad, he had a very violent temper. He was very, I'll just back up a bit. My first four years of life, he was extremely violent to me and extremely violent to my mother. And he also was drinking a lot. He was gone a lot. He was, you know, cheating on her. Um, And he also had pornography in the home at that time too. And so what I wish my mom had not done 
knowing who he was, I really wish he hadn't sent me there every summer. Like if, if my daughter's, you know, if my ex, if my ex was that type of man, I wouldn't have, I would have never sent my daughter, you know, to that kind of guy. So I still live with that. You know, the fact that my mother actually sent me to him knowing, knowing how he was. Yeah. And have you ever had that uh, conversation with your mother? Yeah. And, and I asked her why, you know, she sent me there and, and she said that, uh, well, I mean, it was a part of the custody deal, you know, the legal courts. So children are betrayed by the court system, you know, in these kind of situations. And, um, and she didn't have family, you know, to help. And, um, and she said that she thought that I would be safe with his new wife. And I, and I neglected to tell her, well, if he was violent to me and you, when you were with him, why wouldn't he be violent to me and and another person? Anyway, I didn't ask that, but I see, I, because I mean, it's, it's really set up in a situation where you are very vulnerable and, and much like, much like trafficking happens, one side of the fence can look very promising, fun, exciting, more wealthy, um, shiny on yeah. that side of the fence. And, and when you look back and you see the struggle of a single mom and maybe she's not home and you're lonely and vulnerable. Yes, I can see how. And then he further asks you to call every time something is wrong. So maybe he can reinforce that, you know, staying where you are is not always the best. I mean, these are the things that we don't think about when we think about grooming, when we think about trafficking. And so at what point did was there inappropriate touching that started with some people? How did the the uh, sex trafficking actually start happening? Right. So let me just say real quick, though, what what my dad would do during the summers. This was also part of the grooming was he would um, he would teach me on what to say in the court hearings to say, I want to live with him and not my mom. So that was a part of it as well. A lot of um, practicing, you know, this is what you say when, you know, we're in the next court case, which was constant. So now to get to your question. um, Oh, and he also would tell me along the way, you know, I'm going to get you, you're going to live with us. You're going to live with us. And so after he was married for the woman for about eight years, he used her to, to groom me because she was really sweet and loving. She had a much different personality than my mother. And, um, and so he used her to kind of lure me, you know, like, of course, I wanted a wonderful mom figure. She did our hair all the time and dressed us up all fancy. And my mom just was too tired to do all that. So, so, um, but he, they separated, they divorced, and it was a few months later, he drove from Ohio to Virginia and I was standing outside of the, the house we were living in and a little boy came up to me and said, Jennifer, 
your dad gave me a dollar to give this to you to tell you that he's going to be driving by any minute in a white van and he's going to have the back of it open. And as soon as you see it, run into the van. And I was like, wow, my dad finally here to rescue me from my, you know, very sad home situation, right? I didn't have a dad in the home. I was desperate for a dad. Children do want a dad. And and he's and he drives by like seconds later and he screams at me through the through the van. He says, Jennifer, run. And so I ran into the van and he literally kidnapped me right in front of my mom. She was bringing in some groceries. I want to break into the podcast to invite you to celebrate our 20th anniversary with us. Over the past two decades, the International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference has welcomed thousands of attendees from all 50 states and from 50 countries. We are the largest and oldest academic conference on human trafficking in the world. Our 20th annual conference will be hosted virtually this year on September 20th through the 22nd. You'll have the opportunity to learn from and collaborate with thousands of advocates, researchers, providers, and survivors from across the globe. This will be our largest conference to date, with over 115 breakout sessions featuring 200 expert presenters speaking about various topics related to human trafficking and social justice issues. You won't want to miss this special 20th anniversary conference. Make sure you are part of the conversation and don't miss out. Find out more and register today on our website, traffickingconference.com. Now, on with the podcast. And then he drove me back to Ohio. And in the back of the van, he had, um, there was a huge cooler of, of alcohol. And now keep in mind, up until age 14, he was normalizing the environment of of alcohol. He would take me next door to, you know, parties in his friend's house and things like that. You know, I got used to hearing and seeing and smelling alcohol. And he also would take me into bars with him as well when I was little. And people would feed me sips of alcohol and they all laughed, thought it was so cute. So alcohol was very normal. So There it was in the back of the van. And, you know, so he had me drink it. So he basically drugged me all the way back to Ohio. And as soon as we got to Ohio, it was like within a few days, he sold me to his first buyer. Oh. Yeah. And his buyer was a gynecologist married to a Playboy bunny. And he was also one of my dad's best friends. And he met the guy through a local pub in the neighborhood. And that pub is where all the, you know, neighborhood people, lots of men, the bartender went and my dad um, had me work as a waitress. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't recall ever getting paychecks or anything like that, but that was his way of putting me on stage. So all the men that came in, they could check me out and, you know, they would take me home. And the bartender, he would take me home in exchange for giving my dad free drinks. So my dad got free drinks. The bartender takes me home. Other men paid him a lot of drug dealings and things like that, too. So that started at 14. And then, um, yeah, I'll take a pause here. How long did that last, Jennifer? 
Okay. So a few months later, so I was there a few months when, you know, once it started and a few months later, my mother came up and she, through the court system, was able to take me back. And that's because she wanted her child support. So she didn't want that interrupted because, of course, she needed that to pay the bills. So she took me back. Only now, you know, I was starting to display symptoms of being traumatized. And my mother didn't understand the connection between my symptoms and what my dad was actually doing. Although, again, from earlier years, she could have suspected bad things happened when I was there based on the profile of who my dad was and continued to be. Um, And so she was getting increasingly frustrated with me and um, more abusive, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. She's just, you know, reached the end of her rope. And so I started running away a lot and um, men were raping me on the streets because they know when you're broken into, you know, so that increased a lot. And, um, and then, um, in, and then eventually I ended up in a, in a halfway house for teenage runaways. And I had a boyfriend at that time, if you want to call him a boyfriend. And, um, and my dad somehow got a, got connected with my boyfriend and I at that time. And he talked the guy into bringing me back out there. So I went back out there for several more months. The trafficking continued. And then I was, I displayed more and more symptoms as it just kept going. And he wanted a break. He was a single mom. He, he did not remarry for a while after the, the wife, after my mother. And so he needed a break and he got rid of me, threw me back to my mother's. Mm-hmm. And, and I was even more, more wrecked by that time. So then eventually she put me in a psych ward. She told me she was going to, um, you know, take me to one place that ended up being a psych ward. And um, I was in there for two months. And after I was in there for a month, she came and visited me and said that I was drooling on drugs. You know, the, this was back in 1982. And it was out of the Psychiatric Institute of Washington, D.C. So psych wards then were we're still a little bit archaic, you know, let's just drug them, get them drooled up and that kind of things. And, and I asked her, I said, why didn't she bring me home when you saw how they were drugging me? And she said, well, I didn't have anyone at home to help me take care of you. And besides my insurance covered another month. So she needed, she needed a break. Yeah. And how old were you at that time? I was 16 and a half. Yeah. So I had been trafficked by my dad from 14 to 16 and a half, two different time frames, several months each. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and what, I mean, yeah. what did you think about when somebody says, you know, I need to get the the child support. So you need to come back and live with me. I need to get my free, continue my free drinks at the bar. So you need to come with me. Um you're working, you don't really see a, a paycheck. I mean, what what did you think? What did your young mind think about love and, and parenthood and trust and safety? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there was no such a thing. I had no concept of it whatsoever. Yeah, none. And even all that was documented in the psych ward. And the reason why she put me in there, it was to get a break, but it was also to label me crazy. 
to make it look like all these symptoms that I was having were my fault. It was something about me because I have the reports and I've been reading through them at, at length. And I'm amazed to see, you know, what she reported to the psych ward was she painted a really good picture of herself and of my dad and also of her family background. You know, she was a hard worker, you know, had this great job, nine years and still going. Dad, he's self-employed, traveling salesman. You know, she's got great parents. She came from a Lutheran family. Her dad was very, um, it was very important education and religion. Um, You know, so she's just painted this really great picture. And meanwhile, I got diagnosed as having conduct disorder. Wow. And when you got released, who did you went back to your mom's house or where did you go? Yeah. So after, after she took me back because her insurance ran out um, and then I was even more wrecked after that because they did drug me up pretty bad in there. And, and that caused some more brain that caused some brain damage for sure. And so I just continued running away, Celia. I just kept running away for several more months. And and then uh, eventually she surrendered. She gave up. She probably figured, okay, it's no longer worth it to get the child support, to deal with this wreck of a child. And she sent me back to my dad's. And that was at, I was 17. So I stayed with him, 17. Um, my That was my last year of high school, so 12th grade. And um, by the time I went back out there, he was married to his fourth wife and they had purchased their own bar restaurant now. Now, so now it's no longer trafficking me out of the pub. He's putting me to work as a waitress in his own bar restaurant. And um, and he had a bartender, for example, was one of his buyers. He would take me home. My dad wouldn't have to pay him sometimes. Right. In exchange for me. And. Yeah. One of his customers was a drug dealer. So in exchange for me, my dad got drugs. Um, Yeah. And I have memories of my dad. um, uh, He uh, continued grooming was, for example, one of his neighbors, he took me next door and um, they sat me down. It was, there was an, it was an old guy, you know, next door and they put out lines of cocaine and pot and alcohol. And I'm like 17, just trying to get through high school. Right. And all I need is my dad and love and a safe place to stay where I don't have to keep running away. And so they drug me all up and the guy starts molesting me in front of my dad and my dad's sitting there watching it for a little while to make sure, I guess I'm not resisting. Right. And then he gets up and walks out. Yeah. Leaves me alone. So that, so he was very well aware of what these men were doing. And he got a lot out of it, you know, and, and also other men's daughters as well. I realized that too. He would always flirt with my friends, you know, any girlfriends I had from high school, he would be flirting with them. Mm. Yeah. So, so you safety was really not something you understood. And when, even when you were on the run, uh, where did you go that was safe? Um, I would sometimes sleep in abandoned buildings. I remember that like in the, like 
underneath the stairway. You know, I found a little space. I remember that. Um, there were kids from high school that I knew, you know, so sometimes I could hang out with them, stay overnight with at their places. Yeah. Um, my mother locked me out once and I, I remember that when I came back, she had locked me out and I, I slammed my elbow through the glass door and I still have a scar on my elbow from that. You know, just trying to get back in because sometimes I didn't have a place to stay. Tune in next week when we finish Jennifer's interview. It's an interesting story. It's a critical story. Why is it so important? Because sometimes we have this idea about what sex trafficking looks like. And we don't think about familial trafficking, but it is one of the largest ways that young people are being trafficked, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So it's an important story. So come back next week, find out what happens to Jennifer's life in her later teen years and into adulthood. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.